Halfway between Portland and the coast, you'll find the small farming town of Yamhill, smack dab in the middle of wine country. It's home to just over 1,100 people, including the Kristoff family. Three generations of Kristoffs run the Kristoff family farms. One of them, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, author, and New York Times columnist, Nicholas Kristoff, grew up here. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're bringing you the show on the road this week from Yamhill, Oregon, from Kristoff Farms. Kristoff recently wrote a column titled, Lessons for America from a Weird Portland. I wanted to talk to him about it, and he invited us to do our show from here on the farm. For those unfamiliar with Kristoff and his work, here's a little bit about it. Nicholas Kristoff is a two-time Pulitzer-winning journalist with deep roots in Oregon. An opinion columnist for the New York Times, his work often takes him to dangerous situations around the world, writing about global issues like human rights, poverty, health, and gender. He also covers stories closer to home. Before all that, Christoph grew up on a farm in Yamhill, Oregon. He's the son of a refugee. His father was born in what is now Ukraine. A Portland church sponsored his father's immigration in the 1950s. Christoph got his first journalism job as soon as he got a driver's license, covering agriculture for the news register in McMinnville. After high school, he attended Harvard, then Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship to study law, a degree he's never formally used. He joined the New York Times in 1984. In 1990, Christoph reported from China as the Tiananmen Square protest became a massacre. He and his wife, Cheryl Wudun, won a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage, the first married couple to win a Pulitzer for journalism. Christoph's second Pulitzer came for his reporting of the genocide in Darfur. He's also co-authored five books with his wife. Their latest, Tightrope, puts the spotlight on Yamhill and rural America, told through the eyes of Christoph's former classmates. Even after nearly 40 years in journalism, Christoph isn't slowing down. You can read his columns twice a week in the New York Times. Portland is 28 miles from his hometown, and Christoph says he's always been proud of his city. But he's been pained recently to see it portrayed as a, a war zone or a dying city. Here's my interview with Christoph on his column and why he says no one should count Portland out. Nick, thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. It's great to be here at Christoph Farms. Thanks for coming out here. Well, I know you have a very special place in your heart for Oregon. What does it mean to you to be an Oregonian? You know, I think partly it's just the, the, this natural splendor that we enjoy, you know, from the, there are a lot of places around the country with great mountains, there are a lot of places with great beaches, <laughs> a lot of places with great desert. We have it all. <laughs> we we do. have it all. And I think we've done a pretty good job of preserving it. Um, I think that historically we, you know, there's people talk about the Oregon way, a sense of uh, problem solving, of not being ideological, but practical. Actually, your, you know, KGW's uh, former alum and, and governor, Tom McCall, is, I think, uh, very much a practitioner of that, of, you know, we've got a problem on the waterfront, okay, let's solve it. And Democrats work with Republicans. Uh, that, too, is, I think, part of what I think historically it was to be an Oregonian. I don't think we practiced that as much as we historically did. 
Well, Tom McCall definitely means a lot to us at KGW, legendary. I wonder when you were growing up, how much did you go to Portland? And what did you think of Portland when you were growing up? So when I was in high school, I took some classes at Portland State. And boy, I felt like a big kid. Big kid uh, <laughs> Going to the city. Yeah, you know, walk down the park blocks. And, and even the seediness was kind of... Uh, sort of fascinating uh, for, you know, a Yamhill kid. Uh, I go to the old Powell's and the, its old location, I think, was on 3rd Street. Uh, and um, and so, and then, you know, I watched as Portland kind of came out of the 70s and really became an amazing city that the whole country uh, really admired. In 1992, the Atlantic uh, Monthly did an article uh, glowing portrait of Portland uh, titled How Portland Did It. And sadly, you're not going to find such an article written about Portland today. So before the pandemic and before the protests uh, in recent time, how would you describe what Portland was like? Well, Portland was, I think, a magnet for the state. I think it really brought people to the state. It was uh, not only the gateway to the state, but you know, symbolized the business strength of the area, the cultural strength, and um, it was uh, historically, I think, really a city that worked. Um, and um, you know, I think, I think even before the pandemic, that that was wilting a little bit. I think Vera Katz was kind of the last mayor who really seemed to have a, a you know. A solid vision for the city. So how would you describe Portland now? Oh Laurel, uh, you know I love Portland. I, um, it's got so many strengths, but you know you look at the homelessness around Portland and the suffering that that represents to those folks uh, and also the challenges it presents to everybody else. You look at the law and order situation um, the record for murders in Portland was set in 1987, and we are now on track in 2021 to break that record. Portland police obviously uh, have had uh, real problems with racism, but communities of color have been preyed upon both by police violence and by street violence, and in each case disproportionately so. And um, um, you know, I, when we are on track to have record murders, that's not going to help that problem. Um, and I, th I think there's more broadly a problem of governance. Um, you know, we, you look at housing and the lack of affordable housing in the city. You look at garbage collection. The Oregonian calls Portland dump town. Um, you look at the red house problem. Uh, you know, that, that reflects a real just a failure of leadership, a failure to provide law and order, a failure to make really difficult decisions. In, in your column, uh, Lessons for America from a Weird Portland, you talked about a, a local businessman and told you about an attempt to recruit an out-of-state executive to Portland. What happened? That, that person made, you know, flew into Portland, uh, rented a car, tr visited the area and visited downtown and declined the job. And, you know, a, I think that person made a terrible mistake. You don't bet against Portland. But, you know, we, 
we've always been proud of Portland and we sort of thought anybody who comes to see it on a beautiful day when it's not raining and when Mount Hood is, is, uh, is there on the horizon, anybody will just fall in love with that. And um, so it's sobering that instead, you know, people from out of town say that um, they don't want to move here. And people from Portland uh, said in the Oregonian poll that they're afraid to go downtown. Right. I find that pretty heartbreaking. They said, uh, talking about that poll, they felt that Portland was dirty, unsafe, uninviting. They thought they'd probably go downtown less often. We've heard from businesses on the brink of closing or thinking about closing. Some have already left downtown. What does that say, do you think, to city leaders? I think there's been a failure of city leadership. And, um, um, you know, I... I think they're well-meaning. I think it's an incredibly difficult job. I think they're balancing different constituencies. Um, but when you, you know, city leadership is about delivering a better quality of life. And when you can't pick up garbage, when you can't keep people safe, uh, that is, and when you can't provide affordable living, that is not delivering a quality way of life. And that uh, is a blemish on Portland it's also a blemish on the whole state. You mentioned homelessness and, and an Oregonian poll also showed that people are really frustrated and not happy with how the city has handled that. The city has said they're going to be more aggressive with clearing camps, but a lot of people who are homeless or advocates say, where do we go when they clear camps? It's really a pretty tough issue to solve. It's a tough issue to solve and it's hard for one city to solve it because if one city does a great job in providing services for the homeless, then there's a risk that it attracts homeless folks from other uh, areas. It's better addressed nationally. But, you know, we're not going to solve homelessness, but can we do a better job? Yeah, we sure can. Uh, the Obama administration became concerned enough about uh, veteran homelessness that it was able uh, by really concentrating on that to reduce it in half over five years. Um, I, the West Coast, the three West Coast states uh, account for 16% of the U.S. population and two-thirds of street homelessness in the country. That represents a failure of those three states. Um, I don't think that in Portland there's been enough emphasis on supply of housing. I mean, there are a lot of reasons people become homeless, but one factor is the cost of housing. And, you know, an average home now in Portland is half a million dollars. The city council, to its credit, did, a, I think, a wonderful thing last August when it uh, relaxed zoning laws to make it easier to add, you know, cottages, ADUs in the backyard. That, that was a really important step and a pioneering one for the country. But we have to do a lot more on the housing side. Maybe this is too policy wonkish, but you know, my sense is that the inclusive zoning law that Portland passed was a very, very well-meant effort to provide affordable housing. It stipulated that uh, apartment buildings more than 20 units would have to provide affordable housing. Very well intended. The upshot is that nobody is building apartment buildings more than 20 units anymore. Um, they're going other places. They're going other places. People in the housing business who I've talked to describe, you know, they say they would like to build in Portland um, because there's going to be a lot of demand, but um, they think they can do better if they invest in Austin or Tallahassee or Atlanta. Uh, and we have to boost the housing supply in Oregon, and that is how we create affordable housing. And, you know, one of the things Portland did 
that struck me as particularly dysfunctional was to buy some existing housing stock and designate it affordable. You know, that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't actually increase the amount of housing that is available. Um, it just moves it from one category to another. What we've got to figure out how to do is increase housing. And it's just a hugely difficult, challenging issue, um, but other parts of the country have done better. Portland, historically, was a place of innovation that other cities around the country turned to. Now, it too often is a place people turn to to look and see what maybe they shouldn't do. Voters have tried to step up. We passed a, a measure, a metro housing measure last May, and the city and county just announced they would spend a billion dollars over 10 years to try to create uh, rental vouchers and case management, behavioral health services. Is that an encouraging sign? That was a very encouraging sign. It's just hard to see what it has actually accomplished so far. And there is this dysfunction in how Portland is administered that I think is probably part of the problem. The um, uh, but, you know, then again, I, I think back to the Vera Katz era or the Neil Goldschmidt era, and then with that somewhat dysfunctional system, things actually got done. So uh, it, it's certainly true that, that you know, voters wanted to deal with homelessness, provided resources. Uh, likewise, I think the effort to provide pre-K in Portland, the voter-led initiative, was, a, you know, an important step forward. Um, but... Um, but boy, you know, it's hard to drive around Portland or walk through downtown and uh, not feel a sadness about where it is right now. And, and it could get worse. I mean, if this continues, then you will see some businesses that will leave downtown and they will move to Hillsborough or they will move to Vancouver. And uh, that would be a pretty devastating blow to downtown that might take some time to recover from. And one of the things that businesses are trying to recover from is some of the vandalism and destruction they see downtown. Let's talk a little bit about the protests after George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. Portland became this national symbol of unrest. There were nights of protests, mostly peaceful. You were at some of them, but there were also a smaller group that participated in violence and destruction. How do you think the mayor and the city leaders responded to those events? I think we were all, and I blame myself for this too, so focused on what I think you know, was President Trump's missteps in that crisis and the way I think he was trying to provoke Portlanders and, uh, and, and exacerbate a mess in downtown that we didn't adequately appreciate uh, the problem that also came from you know, from the, the, the far left and the risks to order if this continued. And I think that some city leaders were fearful of being portrayed as not progressive enough or as not concerned enough about uh, racial inequity that they allowed this to go, uh, to go too far. Um, and you know, the uh, call to uh, defund the police is an example of uh, something that has gained a lot of currency in uh, progressive circles, but that among ordinary voters, everybody hates, uh, whether it's whites 
blacks or Latinos, strong majorities are nationally are against defund the police. And we saw that in Portland as well. Um, you know, when the murder, uh, when the, the number of murders is, may well set a new record this year, it doesn't strike me as an optimal moment to defund the police. Albeit, we also need, you know, these various other efforts to, uh, to deal with people who are mentally disturbed, to deal with, um, you know, to, to try to reduce police violence. Uh, I mean, th these are all, all legitimate problems, but law and order is a pretty elemental one as well. And I don't think, um, in retrospect, I don't think we were adequately focused on pivoting when the feds moved out to addressing the problem of law and order right here in Portland. My conversation with New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof continues when we return. His thoughts on Portland's leadership, how the city can bounce back, and the urban-rural divide in Oregon. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're on the road this week with New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof at his family farm in Yamhill. And back to the protests and, and Mayor Wheeler, he was kind of in a tough spot. He was really Absolutely. criticized from the right for being, uh, you know, not aggressive enough with protesters from the left for being having, he's a police commissioner too, for not being, being too aggressive with the protesters with tear gas and, and riot control tactics, crowd control tactics. Was it a no-win situation for him? What do you think he should have done? How did he handle all that? It was a no-win situation. He was getting criticized from every angle. But the point of having a leader is you have somebody who is willing to, can I say piss people off? I <laughs> think so. Okay? <laughs> uh, you know, is having a leader who can, who can piss people off, who can offend people, who can make hard decisions. That's what Tom McCall did. Um, and I think that in Oregon, we maybe uh, have been sometimes short of people who've been willing to antagonize important constituencies and make really hard decisions. And I sympathize with Ted Wheeler. He, you know, he was in an impossible situation, but he did sometimes look like a deer in the headlights in that impossible situation. And at the end of the day, I did not see enough leadership. If he was gonna tick people off, what do you think he should have done? What if you had been mayor, what would you have done? I think he should have moved much more quickly to uh, to reestablish order, especially after the feds left. I think before then, it, that would have been very hard. But, uh, and he has belatedly done that more recently, made clear that if you break the windows of the Oregon Historical Society, that that is not advancing racial justice. If you do that at the, you know, the boys club, that's not uh, a striking a blow for racial equity. But I think that needed to happen earlier. I think the Red House in Portland is just an example of a city that is unwilling to implement its own laws. And it's, a, I mean, I, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult situation for the police and for the mayor, but it's an advertisement to a vacuum of law and order. And it's, I think, gonna make a hard decision to actually move in and, and solve it. Um, and, um, you know, schools, again, it's a really hard decision to, to reopen schools, but it does mean leadership and being willing to take on constituencies, including the Oregon Education Association, uh, and including a lot of parents who were deeply concerned, understandably, about 
their kids' health. Uh, but uh, leaders do have microphones and platforms, uh, and the point is you don't just follow the public, you lead them. Being mayor of Portland's got to be one of the toughest jobs around. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it's, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I sympathize with Mayor Wheeler in, you know, what he's trying to do. I think he has uh, come around um, uh, and is trying to assert the need for law and order. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that Portland is delivering for its people under his leadership. And you haven't minced words. You were pretty critical of Portland city leadership responding to an OPB report that the disgraced former head of Portland's Civic Life Bureau had gotten one year's salary in return for a resignation. And you tweeted, Portland governance is truly embarrassing. That's pretty stinging. Yeah, um, you know, and it, you know, it, it hurts to say that, but you know, I think back to that 1992 Atlantic article holding up Portland as an example for the nation about how major cities can deliver for their people. And Portland in 2021, with examples like that, is an example to major cities about how not to provide governance. Same with garbage collection, same with so, so many of these other issues. It's not, you know, it's not just one issue. I think it's a broad failing of governance. I, I do have to ask you, because we're talking to you from Yamhill, about any tensions that you might perceive between rural Oregon and Portland. Oregon has a problem, and America has a problem, with tensions between the, um, you know, the big cities and folks in rural areas. And uh, I think there are a lot of folks in rural parts of America generally who feel uh, deeply resentful and misunderstood and condescended to by people in the cities. In Oregon, you, we have this effort to secede and join greater Idaho. Um, and um, you know, I think that's a ridiculous idea and it's not gonna happen, but we do have to try to knit the state together and knit the country back together, and that is going to require efforts on both sides. The dysfunction in the Oregon legislature, I think, is problematic. The you know frustration, the the tendency to of each side to want to talk over the other, and um, you know, I mean, these are these are obviously you know enormous problems that aren't easily solved. But uh, th there was a poll this week that. Uh, said that 15% of Americans, including 28% of Republicans nationally, um, believe it's appropriate now to take up arms because America is so off track to, uh, against the government. And I, I can think of uh, two friends uh, living within uh, a mile or two of here who very much believe that. I think that's incredibly misguided, but also incredibly dangerous. And we're stuck with each other. Portlanders are stuck with people in Yamhill. Yamhill people are stuck with people in Portland. They may not see eye to eye, but we've got to talk to each other. We've got to show respect for each other. We've got to listen to each other. We as a state have to figure out better ways of making exchanges. Let's take some Portland kids and send them off to La Grande for you know, the study abroad, if you will. Um, uh, 
we, we've, as a state, we have to figure out how to revive a political culture that historically did show that kind of respect, but that I think has, uh, has been lost in recent years. Closing thought that you'd like to offer for viewers? At the end of the day, what has made Oregon work is just a practical, empirical uh, approach to solving problems. And I think that that is going to start with acknowledging um, mistakes, acknowledging weaknesses uh, in the context of the glories of this state. And I think that's the way forward, and I think that's the Oregon way forward. Nicholas Kristoff, thank you for joining us here on Stray Talk. Thanks for coming out to God's country. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> we want to thank Nicholas Kristoff and his family for their gracious hospitality at their Yamhill farm. And thank you for watching. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk.